there. We have used this space for the last few weeks to discuss the Valley of Elah, that concept which is very big in Jewish thought, especially uh, used by the writer of the book of Hebrews. That was the valley where David stepped out to meet Goliath. And it became a, uh, a metaphor, a symbol, uh, a meme, perhaps we would say today, for any time that you were in a decision moment, a valley of decision, you were in the valley of Elah. Will you step out with God or will you pull back? It, God never shoved anybody into the valley. And that's going to be an important concept as we go through. As you read Hebrews, we do have a problem with the book of Hebrews, and it was started by Stephen Langton. And I'll explain, do not panic yet. In, in the year 1227, Stephen Langton, a professor at the University of Paris and later the Archbishop of Canterbury, divided the Bible into chapters, 1227. About 330 years later, uh, a French printer named Robert Stephanus um, uh, put the verse divisions in. That's, in Hebrews, that really hurts us because they broke up thoughts and, they, and they're not discrete units. There's a flow to it. It would be great if you could find the Bible, and they are out there, with no chapter or verse divisions. And read Hebrews and see what happens. It changes the book. Once that happens, then I'm going to ask you to go read the Gospels without chapter and verse division. It is amazing. You see the flow so much better. But as we read the beginning of Hebrews chapter 4, we're really following a thread that begins back in Hebrews 3 and verse 7. Back there, we are warned, be open to the Holy Spirit. Leave room for the Holy Spirit. Listen for his voice. Keep moving, but move away from disbelief. Move away from disobedience. Move deeper into your relationship with God. And I need just to give a wee commercial here. We are blessed beyond measure to live where we live and when we live for so many reasons. But one of them is you live in Middle Tennessee, a half hour from Lipscomb University. And Lipscomb puts on a program every summer called Summer Celebration. Now, somewhat shortened this year. Uh, I haven't asked them the why or the like. I think they're just trying to concentrate it more. Starts on Wednesday. For most people, it starts Wednesday evening. There's a program during the day for some. But Wednesday evening, and going, there's going to be a cappella singing led by a good friend of ours who is our good friend in Rochester. Uh, I haven't even talked to Trace yet and tell him that uh, Chris Shields is going to be... I'm just so excited that Chris is here. Um, the... Um, then all day Thursday, many classes are available, many at the same time. I will be speaking on Wednesday night and Thursday night, but a couple of points there. You don't need to come, not to me, because there are other things going on, and what I'm doing is really a revamp of a couple of lessons that you heard during the discipline series. Yes, I do reruns. However, as the people up top know, I rarely stay with the notes, and so there will be some variances. That said, there are four or five things going on at any time, and if you miss one, you can order a recording of it all day long Thursday, and then half the day on Friday, and then they do this big bison block party, I think they call it, 
uh, Friday afternoon, it goes all the way into fireworks at 9 o'clock. It's a big deal. People all over the world would love to have this opportunity, and it's right there. And it's about the Holy Spirit. Leonard Allen, one of the greatest scholars we've got right now, uh, wrote a book recently on the Holy Spirit, and this is the rollout. So if you wanted to know more about the Spirit, great opportunity. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We can bring, there we are. Therefore, since, and I love, again, the word so and therefore, what, you know, go through and just notice that in Hebrews. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, and we're talking about the people in the wilderness. They did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Oh my goodness, these are deep waters. You can wait around in this for a very long time. What's he talking about? Well, there are layers of meaning here that we're going to need to peel back one at a time. We are in a room which we did not pay for. There were people before us who were very, very generous. Now, by the way, we have some of our older members who may have been those people. So allow me to speak in only very general terms. Other people paid so that we could be in this building. Other people made sure there was air conditioning installed. We, uh, we, we are blessed by those that have gone before. I think we can all agree there. But we are also blessed because we inherited, most of us in the room, inherited a belief because our parents told us. And they took us to Bible school and vacation Bible school. And they, uh, perhaps, they, perhaps they weren't the greatest lights of theological thought, but they kept you in the community somehow. Or later, you gravitated toward the community. Whatever it is, at some time in the life, you have to take your inherited faith and make it your faith. Now understand, there's no easy way to do this. The easy way to do it would be, well, let's just change everything. No. Why reinvent the wheel? We need the faith of our fathers and see why it is their faith. And then if something needs to be changed and the Holy Spirit is pushing you that direction, then meet with your community and see if what, because uh, no private interpretation, we need the community. If the community agrees that the Spirit is moving, move with the Spirit. So making it your faith doesn't mean a wholesale rejection of what has been done before. It just means we need to remember where we are, the gift of where we are, but also we need to remember where we're supposed to be. The writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians who knew their story very, very well, and the songs today could not have been better. Thank you, Mark. He always works on that. But to guide us into this, this is my story. This is my song. You've got to choose a story. Last month, uh, Skeptic Magazine, a magazine for atheists, and I'm sure you've read it too, um, the big title article was, How Did We Get Something Out of Nothing? And I thought, excellent, because this is a big sticking point with me as I talk to them, because I'm going, you got something here. And they ran through um, a dozen theories, all of them, less likely than God created the heavens and the earth. All of them far more complicated and all of them requiring far more leaps of logic and assumptions. 
well, you know something? They picked that story. I get it. You're free to pick that story. I picked this story. None of us were there. We have to pick a story. What is your story? Well, they knew their story, the Jewish Christians. They knew they'd seen, uh, they were descendants of a people who saw God at work in Egypt, who received water and manna miraculously as they journeyed through the wilderness. And they then come to a river and they lost their faith. Their faith was not strong enough to get them to cross that river into the place of rest, into the place God had promised. Now, to be honest, it was a scary river. At that time of year, it would have been in flood, we're told. At that time, and also, they believed what the people on the other side of the river believed, and that is that there was a God in the river that protected the people beyond the river. And to step into that river would have required some serious faith. And they balked, and they stopped. And the writer of Hebrews is reminding them that one entire generation had to die in the wilderness. And now, a new generation has to step up. Are you going to cross the river? Some, by the way, did not. Some asked uh, Moses to ask God, is it okay if we just stay on this side? So the tribe of Manasseh gets split up. Some just don't go across that river. And I'm sure that if you sat them down and said, have you learned nothing from your parents and the way they perished? Have you learned nothing from the promises of God? Every one of them could have come up with a very good reason not to cross the river because we're good at that. We're good at making a story that leaves all blame off of us. But you're either across the river or you're not. You've either got faith to do this or not. And most of the new generation's faith was greater than that of their fathers, and so they entered in. And may I make another point here about that? I would never try to generalize your level of faith because, quite frankly, that would be absurd. There's no way I would know. So I'm going to use me here, not wanting this to be about me or self-reference, uh, but that's uh, the only reference I can really use. When I walk around millennials and I walk around the teens, I see greater faith than was there when I was that age. I don't understand why people have to keep putting articles up on Facebook and Twitter and the like about why millennials are abandoning the faith. No, they're not. Have you heard them pray? They pray in a way that's more powerful, meaningful, and direct than I ever did. And teens, teens come up to me with their iPhones full of sermon podcasts that they listen to. When I was a kid, you would have had to beat me, and they did, <laughs> to listen to a sermon. The new generation, don't, don't be afraid of, oh, what, we're putting all this money into here, and we're putting all this effort in there, but the world's just going away from Jesus. No, it isn't. The next group, watch out. I'm glad I'm going to be able to see it from heaven because there are good seats up there to see what they are doing. I'm, I'm excited. The new generation enters in. Uh, those who refused to go forward after all God had done had told they were, there are no other chances. Think about that. You cross the river now or God is done giving you a chance to cross the river. Hang with me 
through some very difficult verses. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. By the way, I love that the writer of Hebrews says somewhere. Because back then you didn't have book names and chapter divisions. So it was kind of like when I was a boy, I would always say, I know that's in the Bible. It's on the left-hand side about halfway down. He's saying somewhere. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day calling it today this he did a long time later he spoke through david as in the passage already quoted today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts the reasoning here seems very odd to us because we use greek systems of logic and greek systems of um step-by-step thought semitic people do not and by the way this is one of the real problems in in speaking to Semitic people, and they would legitimate say, legitimately say, this is why it is so hard for them to speak to us. Because we follow in our brains a particularly Greek way of thought. They do not. They use story, implication, reference. And I, I, don't, I have no idea how interpreters pull off their job. Because you are not just interpret. It's not word for word. You are doing worldview. And trying to weave that in to what you're saying. But here he is saying this. God has drawn some lines in the sand. He is not going to create a different universe for you than this one. God is done making the universe. He will not remake it. You cross that line now or you cross it never. The only chance you have is today. Now I'm going to lose if any of the teens are paying attention, and they do, they pay attention well, but I'm going to lose them here. There are times over the summer where they'll say, we need you to do your summer reading, and there are these four books. When you start the summer, you think, I've got nearly 90 days to read this. No, you have now. Why? There can be a death, there can be a sickness, there can be a vacation opportunity, there can be a job... All of a sudden, it's eaten up your time, um, and you lost. We do that with God, too. We're going to give more later. We're going to work more later. We're going to think more. We're going to pray more later. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, there isn't a later today. Today is what you've got. We have to come to a point where we accept that the universe that is here is the universe we've got. And that means all of the laws of the universe and all of the laws that God put into us are immutable. They are not going to change. You can get upset at the planet, but the planet wins. Biology wins. And God wins. And here's a harder one. One that I had to learn through some pretty hard lessons and I'm still grasping the lesson. You will not get... The God you want 
There is only the God who is. I truly believe that that's some of the reasons why superhero movies are so popular. Is people want a God that will come down and just beat up evil in front of us in miraculous ways. No. And you can be angry with him and you can, you can complain to him. But he is the God who is. Whenever, if you work in psychology or social work or psychiatry and, and you're, you're actually working with patients, clients, <clears throat> one of the, the little keys we look for in therapeutic situations is, can you deal with what is? Rather than living in, it shouldn't be, and what if? Can you deal with it? Now, you don't have to like it. What is may be very, very painful. Uh, maybe you would give anything for it to be otherwise, but can you accept what is? Or are you committing intellectual suicide by not living your life because it's not the life you wanted? And turning down your opportunities because they're not the ones you wanted. Are you accepting what is? God frequently held in front of his people what looked like a very simple decision. He would say, I hold before you life or death. I hold before you blessing or cursing. Which will you choose? Now, if you're, if you're six, that's a no-brainer. Life, please. I like the blessing. You got it. But most people choose death and cursing, not by acclamation. They don't yell out in the crowd, I'll take death. But by the way they live their life, they've taken death. They chose the curse. They chose this. They didn't have to go there. They chose it. God did not rush in then after they made that decision and make things right. No, you get to live with your decision. You deal with the consequences of your decision. I wish the universe wasn't like that. I really do. There's a Canadian folk group called Great Big Sea. And I, I put to be accent on it because half of them are from Scotland. But uh, they have a song about, con it's called Consequence Free and how he wants to be consequence free. And you read the, the lyrics and, you're, and I'm going, wow, me too. But that's not our universe. That's not what God laid out. That's not the river we have to cross. The writer of Hebrews warns Christians that we have a decision to make. Saved people still have to make faith decisions. Remember this. This is not an evangelistic book. Hebrews is not trying to get non-believers to be believers. It's talking to the most solidly rooted of all believers, the Jewish believers. And he says, you have some decisions to make. Will you enter into relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And then will you step further and make him your Lord? Make him truly your God or will you hesitate when you put come near to putting your foot in the water I've said this before and it's all just a guess on my part but I, I it just has always amazed me how people in the believing world don't really fight you on believing and they don't really fight you on living at least kind of according to the Sermon on the Mount but when you talk to them about baptism there's just real pushback and it's always amazed me. And there are other ways, you know, even those that want a baptism will say, well, it's optional. 
but to be a member here, we'd like for you to do it. And sometimes they'll back it way off to sprinkling or just pouring a bit of water on a head. And my guess is it's because you can believe at home and you can repent to the walls and truly repent, but just to God, but you're by yourself. And you can confess that you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, but to be baptized, you have to put your body into the hands of someone else. You have to leave where you are comfortable, your environment, and go into a place we are not comfortable. And you have to trust that you're coming back up. Now, if you're not familiar with immersion, we don't hold them down just to increase their faith. <laughs> so when I say trust, we really do bring you back up right then. You don't have to hold your breath even. It, it's pretty quick. And if Wayne baptizes you, 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 you step in the water and it's over before you know it. Um, and, that's a, and, and that's kind of a, a thing here. Anyway, you have to lose control and place your life in someone else's hand. Isn't that exactly what baptism is? And crossing the river? You have to say, okay. It's your world, God. This is my father's world. I will live in it. Joseph Addison was the first one to pen that, the phrase, he who hesitates is lost. Actually, he wrote, the woman that deliberates is lost. He wrote a play in 1712. The play's name is Cato, C-A-T-O. And uh, that began, that, that morphed from the woman that deliberates is lost to he who hesitates is lost. Those who love and admire Jesus but are not ready to choose him above all things are stuck on the wrong side of this river and that is not a safe place to be because you get today. You only get today. In the book of Romans, we're warned about the consequences of stepping back from the river of decision. Three times in Romans 1, God makes a terrifying statement. He gave them over. No, he's not destroying them. He's letting them destroy themselves because they choose not to trust him. They're going to have consequences to their free choices. In Romans, I'll just, we'll do that really quick. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God. Remember, they're admirers, not followers. That's a problem a lot of people with Jesus as well. They admire him, but they're not going to follow him. Uh, and by the way, that applies to me too. I'm not throwing at everyone else. I'm a human. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, the, the longer you deny God, the harder it is to cross the river. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over and the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Because of this, again, we skipped a few verses on purpose. This is all Romans 1. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. Furthermore, as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Wrap your head around that statement for a while. So God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. 
you get to choose. Blessing or cursing, life or death, will you cross the river? Back to Hebrews 4, and you see that today has been set for our decision to enter his rest. And I, th I think it's time for us to define that in their terms. I defined it in our terms with uh, the book reading things. But for them, back in the days of the people that stood there, the promise was if you cross the river, you enter into the rest of God, the promised land. God promises to give them the land. But if you've read your Bibles, you find out they had to fight for every inch of it. So was God dishonest there? No. And the prayer that Jesus gave us, give us this day our daily bread. We don't expect it to come wafting through the window. We're asking for the ability to go out, work, and bring home bread. We are asking for him to walk with us through the battle, not to excuse us from the battle. And by the way, he's promising we're going to win the war. He doesn't promise you're going to win every battle. Because you will not. None of us make it through this world unscarred. Not even Jesus. But, just like Jesus, we'll all be victorious when it's all said and done if we cross the river. There will be casualties. But will you cross the river? So the rest here that is in Hebrews is not talking about heaven. It's not even talking about sitting around just on the back porch. It's saying you rest from your decisions. I want you to think about this. Every day, we have a myriad of decisions to make. Those who elevate Jesus as Lord and follow him are free from many of those decisions because a decision has been made for us. We've been celebrating a lot of anniversaries here, and, and it's just it's amazing to see how long you've been married and you still like each other. That's pretty cool. That's wonderful. Sometimes I'll even joke and say, when I married Cammie, I made a good decision, but it killed my dating life. And everybody understands what that means, and nobody believes I really had a dating life. It's just, it's just, it's just a throwaway line, right? Cammie and I uh, will celebrate our 40th this year, and here's the point I'm trying to make. Cammie's a beautiful woman, and sometimes she has to travel for a design job. I'm not a beautiful anything, but sometimes I have to travel to do my work. I have never once worried about who my wife was with, what is she talking, is she going to get a better offer than me? None. Because when she went into the water, she made her decision to follow Jesus. All of those decisions about flirting or adultery, or anything, those, those are not on our table. We can rest from that. We don't have to worry about that. During the AIDS epidemic of the 80s, we were all frightened, not knowing at first how it was transmitted, and, and is this going to be a, a, an epidemic? And in some communities, very sadly, it was an epidemic, and Christians didn't always respond well to that, we need to be honest. But there were times I would hear somebody say, anybody could get this, once we found out the way it was transmitted. And I was going, no, no, there are certain behaviors, uh, most of the time using dirty, dirty needles, that Christians don't have to make that decision. We've already decided. Our Lord has decided. And that's not to puff us up and saying, oh, we're good and you're not. No, no, no. The only difference is we know Jesus and perhaps they haven't been introduced 
in a way that would win their, excuse me, win their heart. There is rest, knowing the decision's been made. I remember <clears throat> when my kids were baptized. I remember when they were married. And although I liked Kara's uh, wedding, and she certainly married a fantastic fellow, I, I greatly preferred my son's wedding because he was the last kid. When they're baptized and they marry a Christian, <laughs> he said, I do. I turned over to Cammie and I said, we're safe. We're done. You know, from now on, <clears throat> if they screw up their life, it's on them. We brought them here. Now, I was somewhat kidding. No, I wasn't. But there is rest when you've made your decision. Matthew chapter 11, please. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now rest, but there's still a yoke. And learn from me. Now what is the rest here? You don't get to wonder about and wonder, well, what, should I do this? Should I do this? Or should I do this? Think of David. When David got up, he went walking, and that phrase in Hebrew always indicates trouble. Walk around saying, what are my options today? And Bathsheba story begins and David's great sin begins no rest means you don't have to think about all of this other put my put my yoke on you and go at Jesus's speed at his direction take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light if you are like me in which case pray God for miracles but I have Struggled at times thinking, he thinks this is easy. He thinks this is light. And God has made it very plain to me, yes, compared to the other. It is. It's compared to living without Jesus, this is easier. This is better. By the way, they would have understood that immediately in Hebrews because they had their songbook, the book of Psalms. And in Psalm chapter 92, <clears throat> excuse me, in the old days you turned away to <clears throat> cough or clear your throat. Now they strap it to you. Nothing you can do. <clears throat> the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted, now look at that. They're flourishing. They're growing because they're planted. In the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our Lord. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no wickedness in him. In other words, I am safe right here. I'm safe right here. Cross the river. Make your decision. The Lord is our rock. We need no other. Jesus is our Lord. We need no other. We will not join the, the religious chorus of the ages that tells us we need Jesus and anything else. Jesus and precision doctrine. Jesus and precision worship. Jesus and the right songs in the right way. No, no. Jesus. That's who we choose. We will not fall for the fallacy that it matters to God more what we believe about him than how we live for him. We will follow Jesus. 
our communities are very divided. And, and Holly, you did a magnificent job this morning. Thank you. It was excellent. Our communities are divided. I don't know of any way to unite us except Jesus. Now, will that mean that we'll all wear the same clothes and the like? No, no, that doesn't mean that. But what it means is we understand that all of our differences are there. But we all bow to the same God. And that removes some options from us. We don't attack others, even if they're different. Instead, we're told to pray for our enemies and love them and feed them. And so we will. We, we don't have the burden of hate. We have been given the job of love. We will let the story of Jesus carry us forward. Our last reading, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. For the word of God, stop right there. <clears throat> All my life, that was used for scripture. It can apply to scripture. John chapter 1 tells us who is the word of God. Jesus. Try it with this. Now, again, often applies to scripture. Think about Jesus. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. <clears throat> It is hard to use these illustrations without at least acknowledging that we don't support all war and violence and the like. I just want to use an illustration from snipers. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Almost no bullets fired in war are fired at a person. Uh, they, they did a study, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman did a study, and it was thousands of rounds are fired for everybody that gets hit. They're really just trying to shove people back and protect movement on this side. And so you do suppressive fire. You lay down suppressive fire. But a sniper knows that every round they send down range is purposefully sent to take a life or another times to disable a, a machine. But to take a life, no wonder they send them out with a spotter. Snipers don't act alone. There's a person that is as well-trained as they are right beside them, helping them do the math, helping them talk. And as, they, as the sniper then lines up finally, it is, the, it is his spotter who will then start saying the cadence to them. This varies <clears throat> according to whether you're Royal Marines, Marines, or Army, or the like. But it generally is, they'll say the speed of the wind. They'll talk about distance. They go back and forth. This is all done very formalized. And then the, the spotter will say, fire, 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 take the shot. The sniper decides between heartbeats, because you don't pull the trigger when the heart is beating. Uh, you have to have, everything is absolutely still. Sends the round. Now that's a deadly thing. But we have a life opportunity here. But we have to send the round. We have to say, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. Well, then step into the river. Be baptized. And then remember, you're no longer in control of your body. You're no longer, you, you do not own your life anymore. You have sent yourself downrange 
into the arms of God, and that is the only decision. One of the things they teach shooters is once you send around, you cannot get it back. That's a bad thing to think about. For us, once you send yourself, do, let all of those other options fall off. You can't go back. You've decided to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask Mark to, if you'll bring your team back up. I am... Um, I'm going to step down here because I know you have to move some monitors. This means to the people on the balcony, I will start disappearing because I'm not big. Hello. There's a man who lives with the Gospels. I can tell you that no one goes there. Not even the people that call themselves red-letter Christians, uh, where they just say, we just believe what's in red in in the Scripture, the words of Jesus. But nobody goes to the Gospels in order to escape religious obligation. I was at a conference once where somebody called another person derisory uh, in a derisory tone. He said, oh, they're just, they, they believe just red letter Christian. They're trying to get away from obligation. I said, have you read the Gospels? You don't go to the Gospels to say, oh, I'm going to get this easier. No. Jesus' teaching will never leave us where we are. As Max Lucado famously said years ago, God loves you far too much to leave you like you are right now. Because he loves you, he will change you. Will you let him change you? Will you cross the river? Would you stand, please? When I was a boy, they sang a maudlin old hymn called Almost Persuaded. It was awful. It was designed just to say, sorry, had your chance. Because the last line, almost but lost. And I'm going, wait, there needs to be another verse here. You know, uh, I've changed my mind. You know, that sort of thing. (laughs) In Scotland, we didn't have baptistries most of the time. And so you had to baptize in the Irish Sea or the North Sea. (laughs) We would always sing before we walked in, I have decided to follow Jesus. And I always tell people, that really wasn't for the convert. They thought it was. It was for us going, we got to go back in. You know, we kept thinking, why didn't God do the sprinkling thing? Nope, he does it this. So we're going. We need to cross the river, remove the option of doing evil, and decide to follow Jesus. That is the rest that is promised to us.